Prison Pipeline here on KVOO Portland. I want to remind you that this is a great time to become a member of KBOO. Show your support for Prison Pipeline and for KBOO by becoming a member of KBOO today. Just go to kboo.fm give. Help us meet our $15,000 goal. We're community funded and we need your support to get there. So just go to kboo.fm slash give or text to kboo to 44-321. Thanks and now on for today's show. Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are listening to Prison Pipeline here on KBOO Community Radio. Um, tonight we're talking with um, author and uh, activist Betty Jane Furzell. Um, Betty, welcome to Prison Pipeline. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, you're an advocate. Uh, you've written a book. Uh, you have pretty extensive knowledge in your field. Can you tell me um, uh, what do you do? Um, I actually, I am a uh, sister of a person who is incarcerated for life plus 25 years. Currently, I'm an investigator for the state I live in. Thank you. And let's start with, let's first, let's talk about your sister and about her case. Um, uh, Who is your sister and how did, how did this happen? Uh, My sister is Victoria Smith now. She was Isaac at the time of the alleged murder. Uh, My sister had a stroke a year before the murder and she was married to a um a man who was addicted to opioids which uh and uh because they were both wrestlers they were like like the professional type wrestlers you know like the wwe type wrestlers and um she they both got addicted to opioids and she already had mental she lived with mental health conditions and um and her and then her adult son decided to move in with them uh, a couple months prior to the murder, and um, she allegedly got up and shot her husband ten times, and then uh, tried to uh, attempt to uh, kill herself. And then um, none of her mental health or her laundry list of of uh, a prescription medicine that she was on was taken in consideration. She was uh, given a plea deal. But it wasn't a deal. It was a just if she pled guilty, they wouldn't seek um, the death penalty on her. So she um, was given, um, uh, I guess, my advice. I told her not to do this. But she went ahead and did it. And the judge sentenced her to life plus 25 years without looking at any of her um, her medical or her mental health records that she had. So in this case, um, did your did your sister actually commit the crime? That she's she accused she, of. Yeah, she says she did. She confessed to it. However, my from my police training and my education, I believe that the adult son did it, and that she's 
taken the blame because uh, Victoria was a domestic violence survivor her whole life. My mother was her first abuser. Then when she went to school, we went to a rural Missouri school where corporal punishment was the, the norm. And so the school was her second abuser. And then as she grew older um, and got into romantic relationships and she would, you know, violence was all she ever knew. And so that was another abuser. And then ultimately the criminal justice system, she started getting into that system um, with drinking and driving. And um, that was, and then ultimately that was her ultimate abuser because she was not given any, you know, any consideration for the health conditions and the reasonable doubt that the son did this. And um, the, the mentality that she had at the time was that she's always taken um, the, the blame for everything. Uh, in my book, I write about how as children, uh, we were um, severely abused by our mother physically. And she would always take the physical beatings if my mom started on the other children. And so none of this was taken into consideration in her sentencing. And your sisters, um, is she incarcerated in Missouri? It's a tough Which, state to be incarcerated in. It sure is, because I was a teacher. When I left law enforcement, I was a teacher. I taught policing and criminal justice in uh, the Ferguson area during the unrest. And um, I, so I, I had to drive through that whole situation to get to my school every day. And so I was dealing with my kids and helping them learn their rights and learn about the criminal justice system and due process. Because in, in the state of Missouri, uh, 17 is a legal adult. So my kids um, were high school kids. They would catch these cases where they would be you know, certified as adults very quickly. <laughs> And so I was dealing with the whole North St. Louis, Ferguson area situation during the day and then at night dealing with this rural criminal justice system that my sister was in. Mm -hmm. And how long has it been since your sister was sentenced? She was sentenced in 2016. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one thing that I saw that Missouri and Oregon both have a, um, a mirror of each other is that a lot of, um, you know, prisons have, have have reduced somewhat and, and not a lot but it's usually in the suburban areas where it is in Missouri and in the case in Oregon according to the Vera Institute of Justice that a lot of the new inmates that are coming in are from rural counties just like my sister's case where um, they're quick to judge a lot of the the police officers get tunnel vision and a lot of the judges they're all elected um, in Missouri they're elected in the prosecutors are elected and the sheriffs are elected. So when they're elected, who and you're in a small county of 21,000 people, you don't want to rock the boat because you want to get reelected. That's where I, I've seen the, the problem with the rural criminal justice. We, we you know, I, I've been in the whole Ferguson, the whole suburban um, criminal justice reform, but now, you know, I, I think about the rural is just as bad or worse. Mm hmm. Yeah, in, in Oregon, most judge races are uncontested. Is it the same in Missouri? It is, it's, and along with the prosecutor. I, um, I, you know, I, I come from a law enforcement background, but I see the problem with a lot of it in the reform that we really need to look into, and I'm glad that the ACLU picked up cause on somewhat, is prosecutorial reform. The, the prosecutor, um, you know, he would, when uh, I was, given testimony at my sister's sentencing hearing 
he wasn't supposed to say anything, you know, and there was no cross of me. It was just me giving testimony that my sister, you know, and here I, you know, my doctorate works in psychology. I have two master's degrees and I am a law enforcement background. And I was just trying to tell our family history of, of the victimization of my sister. And he would just keep interrupting the, the, the um, attorney because he's elected. He, and he's in a rural county of 21,000 people. And, um, if that's the case, you know, just like I looked in the, the Vera um, statistics in Oregon, it said that uh, that it's the same as, as Missouri, that it has went up uh, 1,223% of women in prison, just like in Missouri. Missouri's is in the 600s, but, um, you know, it, that's women are becoming our new, um, are, are the prisoners and the women from the rural counties who don't have resources. Why do you think that there's been this dramatic increase in rates of incarceration of women, especially rural women? Uh, there's a lack of resources to begin with. And the, a lot of women like my sister don't have a voice. They don't have, um, they don't have anyone to be their champion. And, you know, even when I went and I told the prosecutor as we were leaving the courtroom at my sister's sentencing hearing, he, I said, we're going to appeal this. He goes to the media and says, I'm getting arrested. He's going to arrest me for talking to him. So <laughs> it's that you don't have a voice. And I think that's very sad. Um, this is the same prosecutor that uh, brought against charges for someone uh, that uh, 300 cases of, of uh, someone that was um, HIV positive that was that had potential partners. And he tried to get the, had them arrested for uh, and he, he and eventually he did get five cases on him, but uh, oh yeah, I think I heard about that. Yeah, uh, that's the same prosecutor that I had to deal with. So I think it's a lack of resources. It's still that same mentality that um, the domestic violence should be left in the home and dealt and dealt with in the home. I mean, we're still dealing with that. I think we've made strides and inroads, but not in these rural counties. Like when my sister was. When I found out that she was getting abused after her stroke, the nearest shelter that, that they had was 50 miles away, I believe. Um, and there were no resources. There was not a legal aid around. Uh, closest legal aid was at least 80 miles away. So the when you're in an abusive situation, sort of like she was, uh, there, because um, we had, my ex-husband and I had tried to get her um, um, help and get our conservatorship uh, and guardianship, but it was almost nearly impossible. I know we talk about conservatorship now with the whole Britney Spears thing, but when someone's married like she was, her husband had way more rights than we did. And especially in a state like Missouri, um, it was nearly impossible. You know, here we were in Seattle, because I live in Seattle, we were in Seattle fighting the fight here, <laughs> trying, mm -hmm. trying to make sense of what was going on in Missouri. Well, so were you having to commute back and forth between Seattle and Missouri yes. during your sister's trial? I got a lot of airline miles. <laughs> um, How long was the whole process from start to finish when your sister was, was first arrested? It was um, four years. Wow. It, yeah. it obliterated my 26-year marriage. It destroyed uh, everything uh, in my mm -hmm. life. I... Uh, got very sick. I, you know, it, I, I didn't understand the whole inertia that what was going on in my life at the time. 
that's why I wrote mm -hmm. this book uh, to kind of, you know, when your sentence, you know, like to me, arresting somebody was just a day at work. And then you think about it, that's you're affecting so many people's lives when you do that. And I, I think that's what a lot of people don't get it until it's so personalized. I, I, I came at law enforcement in a different aspect because um, yeah, my we have a generational problem with homicide in my family. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. and, um, it's usually with an intimate partner, but, um, so when I came and I was from a very low income area, I wasn't your typical police officer from a nice middle-class background. Mm -hmm. So I brought a different perspective in it. When you say that you have a generational problem with homicide in your family, do you mean that this was something that happened in the past? Yes. Uh, my great grandfather, uh, was, uh, was accused of murder my grandmother and my own mother um were they all had this this issue uh with the, there was you know my, my mother um she was never convicted and then i have an older sister that was they're always suspected but never convicted and when my mom died uh, she had on her deathbed she had done a bed dead bed confession to me and i was a detective at the time i was like please don't do this to me Mm -hmm. I I don't want to I I, uh, I have an oath I have to uphold and um, but she had passed you know she passed on but it's it's transgenerational trauma uh, that has occurred and you know because I when I was starting to write the book I was like I um, I need to figure out how I didn't get into this how I did in law enforcement and I believe it was my birth order because I was the youngest of eight by five different mm -hmm. fathers. And I believe that it was just my, I was in the community exposed to different um, different ways of life. So I wasn't always in the house. I was, you know, doing Girl Scouts or crossing guard or in church. And I think that those were the things that um, separated me from falling into that transgenerational trauma. However, after Vicki's case and I got into therapy, I realized how really, um, I, I came out with a lot of burns from hell. <laughs> How many scars I really brought back, I really had. I just knew, had a better coping mechanism than my sister. You're listening to Prison Pipeline here on KVOO Portland. I want to remind you that this is a great time to become a member of KBOO. Show your support for Prison Pipeline and for KBOO by becoming a member of KBOO today. Just go to kboo.fm slash give. Help us meet our $15,000 goal. We're community funded and we need your support to get there. So just go to kboo.fm slash give or text to KBOO to 44-321. This must have been just an incredibly traumatic experience for your sister regardless of the circumstances to like lose now, now when 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 her partner died how 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 did that affect her was she was she grateful that he died i mean was yeah. she out of a cycle of abuse now was she like saddened oh, she, by his death um no she was um in i believe in shock because for the first three weeks she was incarcerated she didn't even know where she was at she called mm -hmm. me it's, you know when someone's incarcerated it's a very arduous process because they don't understand because we all program numbers into our phone. So I had to send her a letter from Seattle and then tell her, you know, um, 
this is my phone number, call me, and then put money on her on the account for her to call me. So this was about two to three weeks after the murder. I She finally got a hold of me and she said, why hasn't anyone come to pick me up? And I said, who's gonna come pick you up? And she said, well, Chris, you know, she's talking about her husband. And I said, Vicki, do you know why you're in jail? And she said, no, I think I, I hit somebody. I must've had a wreck because she was having wrecks. She was driving the, the car after the strokes and was having wrecks because he would make her drive everywhere when mm-hmm. she wasn't supposed to be driving. And um, so she said, I must've killed somebody. I must have, and I said, well, you did, <laughs> but it wasn't with a car. And I had to explain to her and she goes, this is a joke, you're just joking. And I said, no, ask them to redo your warrant. And she was on a no bond warrant for the whole entirety of her, um, her pre-trial. Hmm. So she doesn't even have memory of the circumstances around the event was was she present or was she near the body when her husband was was found dead uh she was out she actually called 911 confessed and um uh the son was there and the son did all the talking and mm-hmm. um uh she said no, she said nothing she just confessed on 911 and then said nothing and um, and then on the ride there without her warrant, because Missouri is a one consent uh, state, which means that they can record you while you're being, you know, um, it, only one person needs to know they're being recorded. So he was uh, prompting her to talk. And um, she just, she did, you know, she said, I did it. And that's all she would say. And then recently we've been with her and uh, she's, you know, I've asked her, did your son do this? And she won't look at me in the face. And, you know, I, I just, I know when my sister's lying. Mm-hmm. And um, I just and said that- If your nephew did it, why why do you think your nephew would have done it? My nephew was, an, uh, was a schizophrenic and he um, had narcissistic personality disorder. And, um, at the time, they he had uh, been diagnosed in, in, in tw- at thirty at twenty three, and he moved in with them at thirty. I have since then gotten records to show that there had for years he had homicidal ideation for mm-hmm. years. And uh, five days prior to the murder, he calls nine one one and says, "I'm going to kill her and him, and then myself if you don't come get me." So the local police came and got him and took him to. To jail and then uh now that they took him to jail but then they decided to take him to the mental institution and he gets out he stays in the mental institution for three days and then two days later chris is dead so, so do you think that your sister is trying to protect her son yeah i do i really do because that's the way she is um i write uh when i was writing the book i i i was from the mentality like hey you did the crime do the time you know even though i knew that there was other mitigating circumstances i was hoping that the health issue and the mental health conditions would be immiscible and um so i was like mate you know they're going to look at all this the totality of it they're going to give her probably time in the state hospital and um so I, I I couldn't sleep and I had I remembered her as a young girl and me laying in bed together and then my mom in the brutal physical altercation with my mom where she took she my mom was mad at me but my sister took the physical abuse for me and I'm thinking you know what that's just her mentality she's always been that way she's always been where um, 
she she's a protector and she feels like she she sacrifices herself for people she loves and I, I was thinking you know all all of these the abuse that she's had all over the years and you know her son uh, subsequently this is a little caveat of what happened with him he was supposed to meet me and my husband when we flew in from Seattle um, to from San, to St. Louis and he didn't show up for the sentencing hearing and um, so I put a, a missing persons report out on him and uh, couldn't find him uh, the police finally got to the case because I kept calling and calling and calling and said, listen, you know, he, he needs to be found. And the, finally got a hold of a detective that knew me from my law enforcement days and says, you know, Betty, he's got a passport. Did you know that? And I said, no, how does he got a passport? And um, come to find out he, on the day Vicky was sentenced, he flew to Italy. <laughs> he was living on the streets in Italy in Rome. And um, so I got a hold of the state department and um, they said, yes, he's here. He has been injured. He got injured on living on the streets there. And, um, uh, you know, you need to come get him. I said, listen, I don't have a passport right now. I, my passport expired and can you put him on a plane? So the cheapest plane that I could find, cause they were kicking him out of, out of the country was from Rome to Frankfurt, Germany, Portland to Seattle. And so I waited at SeaTac for him and he never showed up. And I had, I was like, what are you, what is going on now? He had gotten off the plane in Frankfurt, Germany and disappeared. Mm. So, so where is he now? He's in Frankfurt, Germany. I mm. went over the, I worked with the, uh, the Frankfurt police department and um, they were very gracious to us. They were very well aware of him because he had been doing things while he was there. And um, so they said they hadn't seen him in six months. So I don't speak any German. <laughs> And uh, I, but I learned uh, a couple phrases, you know, where's my nephew and uh, this is my nephew, took pictures of him and I did, I walked to the homeless community and they found him for me and I found him in three days and um, tried to get him back on a plane, but um, it, it, we couldn't get the passport in time. So I had our state representative here in Seattle help me to get a passport and my ex-husband went over and we tried to get him again and he disappeared two hours before the plane was supposed to take off. <laughs> so um, it's, and then COVID hit. And so we had to, we're, we have to work with the German authorities to get him back over here, but he also has rights and he's not charged with anything right now. So that's, yeah. that's another issue that we're having with her confessing. And, but I, you know, even if she was involved in this, which I think if she was, it was after the fact and he did this, but even if at that point, the sentencing she got was ridiculous with a plea deal. She got life plus 25 years. And so what do you think, like if she had actually committed the crime, mm -hmm. what do you think would have been unfair about the sentence then? Um, because there was another, a man that actually, uh, in here and just recently, there was a man in the same county that did the crime, but he actually hid the murder weapon. He actually lied to the police and he got 28 years. He hid the mm. body even. He got 28. The The sentencing disparities between a female and a male in, in rural Missouri is ridiculous. She got life plus 25 years. He gets 28 years, and he has a possibility of parole in 15. She doesn't have a possibility for parole until 2048. Mm -hmm. Do you think that judges in rural counties are 
acting out of misogyny or is there some other factor at play that like causes disparaging sentences between men and women for similar crimes? I do. I think there's a lot of misogyny that goes on and a lot of not being educated in the effects of domestic violence and transgenerational trauma. This would, and, and trauma in general, the, this, you know, childhood trauma has such a lasting effect and it changes you, not just uh, mentally, but then there's a physical change in you. And um, I think that a lot of judges that don't understand the whole effect of everything that goes on with um, with domestic violence. I've seen it myself before. I've, I've worked cases where I have testified for the defense, even as a police officer, because sometimes domestic violence victims, they get arrested for uh, for the crime, and then you have to go and that whole thing, you're getting re-victimized again. There is a lot of misogyny, and um, there's a lot of um, just not understanding the whole effects of of the trauma and abuse that, that happens to women. So it sounds like even if your nephew had committed the crime, it sounds like he also has his mental health issues too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of people say, well, you know, why are you telling about your, well, you know, I, I believe that um, he he needs to have the help too, but her t- there was a lot of mitigating circumstances in this case. It was not just uh, someone getting up and confessing to this. It was, there was a lot that wasn't taken into account with her sentencing, and um, had she had had a better, you know, attorney in which Missouri public defenders are, are strapped. They are just like every public defender system is. And they're, it's not that they're not good lawyers. It's just that they're, they're sometimes they just don't have the resources or the time to deal mm-hmm. with it. And um, so I think that's a lot of the issue that, that we run into with, with uh, cases like Victoria's. There was just so much medical. There was five banker boxes of medical uh, that weren't even looked at by the judge. I had to, to step back and have self-care for myself because I was just so caught up and I had never seen the criminal justice system as bastardized than it had been in my sister's case. And I think I had that rose-colored glasses that a lot of police officers have that we're doing the right thing. We're, we're, we're going out, we're making sure that the community's safe, but are we? Right, thank you. Uh, so we've just got a couple of minutes left. Um, what is the name of the book that you've written about your sister and where can people find it? It is, If You Can't Quit Crying, You Can't Come Here No More. And uh, a family story of um, poverty, mental illness, and um, the criminal justice system in rural America. It, you can find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. It's um, locally in, in the stores here in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, my publisher is a great publisher out of Seattle. And uh, that was the first line that she said to me, we're big, we're tough Missouri girls, we don't cry. And I couldn't stop crying when I saw her in jail. And if people would like to find out more about your sister, is there any place that they can go to kind of, is there like any sort of advocacy? Is there a petition or a website or anything like that if people want to learn more about her case? They can go to my website. It's uh, bettyjanefrizzell.com. And... uh, we're just uh, we're just working on because right now she's exhausted all her pills, 
And the only way she can get out is a habeas corpus with only 3% of those are, are ever granted or a clemency from the governor of Missouri, which is not going to happen because he is a former law enforcement officer and believes in that people, once they're sentenced, they're sentenced. And so your website, it's Betty Jane Frizzell. How do you spell that? How do you spell that last name? It's uh, F-R-I-Z-Z-E-L-L. Great. It's like the old country singer. <laughs> Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Betty, for being on Prison Pipeline. Thank you so much. Thank you. Baby, you understand me now. If sometimes you see that I'm mad. Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel? When everything goes wrong, you see some bad But I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood Before we go, I just wanted to remind you that this is a great time to become a member of KBU. Show your support for Prison Pipeline by becoming a member of KBU today. Remember, 80% of our funding comes from our members, and less than 10% of our listeners are members of KBU. We're an independent, community-supported, volunteered power radio, and our programming focuses on unique issues that you may not hear in the corporate media. So if you can, please help us meet our goal of $15,000. We're community funded and we need your support to get there. Just go to kboo.fm slash give or text to kboo to 44321. Thanks so much and have a great evening. FM, K282BH, Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR, Hood River on 91.9 FM. KBU radio station is located in Portland, Oregon, in Multnomah County. We honor the indigenous people whose traditional and ancestral homelands we stand on. The Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, Watlala, Bands of the Chinook, the Tualatin, Kalapuya, and many other indigenous nations of the Willamette and Columbia River regions. It is important to acknowledge the ancestors of this land and to recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them. In remembering these communities, we honor their legacy, their lives, and their descendants with the forming of relationship to each other and the living world. We establish and support harmony within ourselves and set the stage for practice. One, two, three, four.